together and sing out. Cause you are stronger, you are stronger, sin is broken, you have saved me, it is written, Christ is risen, Jesus you are Lord of all. That's the truth today, we worship Jesus. Is love that came for us, humbled to a sinner's cross. He broke my shame and sinfulness. He rose again victorious. Faithfulness none can deny. Faithfulness.
Well, over the next hour, the band will lead us in some more worship, and Pastor Mark will be bringing us the first talk in the new series, Alone. So, let's worship together. Precious
today we believe that you are the lord of everything god and we just say thank you god thank you for giving us all that we have lord and we just thank you for the words of that song god that you give and you take away from us and our hearts can choose to say that we worship you even through times that are dark in our lives father we we just worship you today and we ask that you would just come and continue um to just speak through mark continue to have your presence made known here in this church god thank you that we can come and gather today and just sing to you. We love you so, so much, Father. It's in your holy and precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for singing. You can all take a seat. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the fourth of five weekend services here at New Spring. Appreciate you guys being here. And by the way, didn't you enjoy Jesse and Jake and the entire team here today leading us in worship? They've been singing about how that we trust God during difficult times. In a few moments, we're going to start a brand new series called Alone from the book of Job. So I'm glad you're here today for that. I think we're going to get some really important answers over the next four weeks. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward now to receive the offering. It's our chance to tell God that our love for him is more than just words. And so as you get ready for the offering, I'll need to tell you there are some announcements on the IMAG screens that you'll watch. Could I call your attention to one in specific? You're going to see an announcement for Starting Point. And Starting Point is just the greatest thing in the world. It's eight weeks where you have an opportunity to sit in sort of a living room environment during one of the five services so that you can attend a different service and then go to a starting point. But you have a chance to talk about the key aspects of the Christian life. And it's for seekers, starters, and returners. But could I just tell you something? I would love to be able to go to a starting point just to attend. Because how many of us are experienced with understanding God has got gaps in it. You know, we heard a sermon here and a sermon there, and we read a book here, and we listened to something on the radio here and went to a concert here. And a lot of times we we have a gap that we need to have filled in. And that's one of the great things about Starting Point. But the cool thing is you don't sit in a lecture room. You get to sit in a living room and just talk about these things for eight weeks. And so I've been told that out in the lobby there's a booth. If you would like to get information about Starting Point, I promise you, I'm always busy during Starting Point, so I can't go. If I could sign up, I would. So you've got a chance to think about that. So on your way out, take a moment, stop by there. Okay, check out what's at New Spring. I'll be back in just a little while to talk to you about Job. Hey, New Spring Church, this is Les Leslie Parrott. We're coming to Wichita, Kansas to rumble. Are you ready? We really are. That's right. February 21st, we will be with you in Wichita for a fight night. Yeah, it's fun. It's just a date night, a chance to relax and laugh and learn a little bit. No guilt, just total fun. 
That's right. If you're like me, you think conflict, fighting, how could that be fun? <laughs> Genuinely, this will be. Well, here's what we say. Conflict is the price we pay for a deeper level of intimacy. Right. If you know how to fight a good fight, if you know how to handle conflict, you can actually use it to bring you closer together. And we're going to show you how all in the atmosphere of a very fun event. We're looking forward to being together. Can't wait. Yeah. See you soon. questions about spiritual matters, questions about God, Jesus, the Bible, the Christian worldview in general, but who can we ask? Most of the time we don't stop and talk about those things, but we all think about them at some point. Your questions about the Christian faith weren't developed in an instant, and you deserve more than a quick one-sided answer. You have a story that led you here. Maybe an answer isn't even what you need. That's why we created a place where we can talk about it together. It doesn't matter where you stand. It doesn't matter where you're from. We just want to help you pursue those answers. And it starts with a conversation. Starting point.
one of the oldest sayings I can remember is smile and the world smiles with you. Cry and you cry alone. And I think the presumption that is behind that statement is that when you're going through good times, people like to be around you. But when you're going through bad times, people scatter. But I think there's a more fundamental meaning than that. See, I think if your life is good today, and I mean by good, if you don't have any serious glaring issue, we all have issues, but I mean, if, if you basically have good health and the people in your family have good health and you have a job and you have enough money to pay your bills, you can feel like you're part of the crowd of normalcy. You don't really feel alone. But, you know, we hear from time to time about stories of people whose lives are different from ours. For instance, we may hear a story about someone we know, and this person goes to the doctor, and she gets a report that she has cancer. And we're sympathetic, and we're concerned, and if we're a God follower, we pray for her. But something deep down inside says to us, but I don't have cancer. And we're allowed to go on in the normalcy crowd. Oh, we hear about a friend whose kid is in a car accident, and the doctors say he may not walk again. And we're concerned and troubled about it and sympathetic. We want to lend a helping hand, but still, at the very core of our existence, there is something, if you're a parent, who says, but my kid wasn't in a car accident. Or you go to work, and you you determine that at the place where you work, a whole group has had their, their jobs eliminated, and you're watching them as they put their belongings in cardboard boxes and carry them out to their car, and you're concerned for them and worried about what's going to happen in their future. But there's something at our core that says, but I still have a job. Or it could be that you have a friend who has an emotional disorder and wakes up one morning and she just feels like she can't get out of bed and doesn't feel like doing anything and you're worried about her and you're concerned for her, but you're saying to yourself, I don't have a mood disorder. And if you're in that place today and if you're a part of the crowd of normalcy, I'm glad for you. But I'm honest enough to tell you that someday that's going to change because the red laser dot of life someday is going to fall on you. And when you do have that experience, as I've experienced it and many of you have experienced it, you you will know what I mean when I say you will experience the aloneness that comes from not being part of the crowd of normalcy. Something just as simple as going to the grocery store and watching people walk up and down the aisles and scan the aisles for what they're going to have for dinner. And there's something within you that feels so lonely in that moment that says, don't you understand? I mean, you you don't really want to cry out, but there's something within you that feels like crying out saying, Don't you even understand I don't feel like eating. I don't even care what I have for dinner tonight. Or you go to work and people are talking about the plans for the weekend and you're saying, you feel like saying, don't you understand? I'm not worried about my plans for the weekend. I don't have any future at all. It's that moment of aloneness. The laser dot has hit us and it will happen. I remember a January night in 1964. I was seven years old. We had a huge snowstorm hit Fort Worth. Biggest, I lived in Fort Worth almost 29 years, and it was the biggest uh, snow I ever saw in Texas. I remember my mother plunging a 12-inch ruler into the snow, and the snow just absorbed it, leaving several inches uh, of, of, the, of covering over the ruler. And we went to bed that night talking about this huge snowstorm. About 2 o'clock in the morning, the phone rang. I remember the phone was outside my room, and it woke me up, woke up all of us in the family. And I heard my dad answer the phone, and on the other end of the line was the voice of my Uncle Albert. Well, Uncle Albert's my mom's oldest brother, one of the finest men I ever knew in my life. And the words out of his mouth were these. He just said this to my dad, Winfred, it's our turn tonight. See, my mom is one of five kids. And already before that experience, before that phone call, two of the members of my mom's family had lost children. My mom and dad were first with my brother Roger, who died of brain cancer at the age of four in 1953. And then her older sister lost a little girl, Linda, when Linda was about three years old. She was helping her mom, you know, as kids will do, pulled up a chair next to to the stove in the kitchen and hot grease spattered out on Linda and her parents were concerned about her and they took her to the doctor and the doctor thought she just needed a little painkiller and he injected her, I think, with Demerol, not knowing that she would have a horrible reaction to that and minutes later, Linda died. And so my Uncle Albert spoke to my dad. He said, Winfred, it's our turn tonight. My cousin Jimmy, the youngest of their three kids, outgoing, effervescent, brilliant student, 
He had a girlfriend, and it, it was snowing in Brownwood that night, too. And he had said to his dad, I want to go see my girlfriend. And his dad, I'll plead with him, no, Jimmy, don't, don't go tonight. It's, it's too bad. But Jimmy just insisted on going to see his girlfriend. And on the way back, his car was T-boned, and my cousin Jimmy was killed. And my Uncle Albert was saying to Dad, in the only words that he could think of, it's our turn tonight. Lord knows I don't want to rain on your parade if you have a parade going on today, but I do owe it to you in the sense of full disclosure and academic honesty. I do owe it to you to tell you that someday the red laser dot of life of suffering is going to fall on you, and you're going to have that feeling of aloneness, and you may feel like Uncle Albert saying, it's my turn now. Some of you already know what that's like. Well, for that reason, I want to take you to a very special book in the Bible, but before we get there, let me be honest about something else. It isn't a book that I choose to read. It isn't. I will do everything I can to keep from reading this book. I love the Bible. And I'm always reading something. You know, I'm reading something for sermons that I'm preparing. I'm reading for systematic Bible study. But, and this will, I hope you don't find this sacrilegious because I don't mean it that way. But there are times when I just have time on my hands with a Bible and no particular agenda. I call it a snack. I just want a snack on the Bible. And, and, and I don't have to have any particular place to read, and I have places that I love to read in my Bible. All my Bible's book of Philippians is worn out. I call it my antidepressant. And I love the book of Philippians. And the, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, I find that absolutely narcotic. I love reading those 13 chapters. Or some days I just want to spend some time with Jesus, so I go over to the Gospels and read you know, about Jesus' miracles or some of the discourses, like the Sermon on the Mount of the Olivet Discourse, something like that. Honestly, in all my years of being a God follower, I've never opened up the Bible for a snack and say, I believe I'll read the book of Job today. <laughs> I do everything I can to avoid that book. And I'll tell you why. Because Job is a guy that the red laser dot of life certainly fell on. And his life fell apart. Now, you need to understand, that's not the reason why I don't read Job. Because I read about lots of people in the Bible whose lives fell apart. But the thing about reading the Bible is in a matter of minutes, even though it may have been years like it was with Joseph. You know, it was 13 years that he had all of his issues. But it doesn't take that long to read Genesis 37 to 50. You can read it in just a few moments. So you get to watch his life resolve. See, here's the thing. All of us as Americans, we're accustomed to things being resolved pretty quickly. You know, there's so many problems in life that we can solve with a bottle of medication. Thank God. Or if you're watching television, if you're watching a 30-minute show, it's going to resolve in the last five minutes. If you're watching an hour-long show, it's going to resolve in the last 10 minutes. If you're going to a movie, you can be watching two hours of problems, but it's going to resolve at the end in some fashion. So we're accustomed to that. So it's not that I don't want to read about people whose lives fell apart. I mean, I read about Joseph, and I love that. And I read about Hezekiah. He was told he was going to die, but he turns his face to the wall and prays, and God adds 15 years to his life. What does that take, 30 seconds, a minute to read that? But Job is different. Have you ever tried to read the book of Job? You need to know several things about the book of Job. It's got 42 chapters. And the book of Job basically is set up like this. The first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, tell the story of Job's life falling apart. Last eight verses of chapter 42 tell about God putting his life back together and God doubling everything that he had. In between are 39 chapters of grinding, unrelenting pain. And for that reason, I don't read the book of Job if I can help it. Because it just goes on and on and on. You know what's interesting? Scholars think that Job is the, most, is the oldest book in the Bible. And certainly not the earliest chronological history. That would be Genesis. Well, we think that Job, for those of you who like to study, we think the book of Job is in the patriarchal period, before the nation of Israel, before the covenant promises, before Abraham. Lots of reasons why we think that. So we think that Job may be the first book of the Bible that was written. Isn't it interesting? How many times do we hear the oldest story in the book? Isn't it interesting that the oldest story in the book is of somebody whose life fell apart and it just ground on and on and on with no resolution? I think there's a second reason why Job is in the Bible. How many of us have almost walked away from Christianity 
or walked away from faith in God because somewhere along the line, some well-intentioned religious person told us that if we followed God and if we just lived right and prayed that all of our problems would go away and you tried to live right and you prayed, but your mother died or that you got an illness for which there's no cure. And you said to yourself, wow, wait a minute. I've been told that if I just follow God, I'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, but I'm trying to follow God and my life is a nightmare. Do you realize that doesn't that idea that you're just going to find, you know, if you trust God and if you're religious and if you love God, you're just going to ride on this cloud and never have any issues. That's bogus. And I think the reason why Job is in the Bible is God's way of saying this is a flawed, broken world. And if you live in this world, you're going to get cut up by the broken shards of life. But God is still God. That's why Job's in the Bible. Now, as I told you, I don't like, I mean, I've been honest with you today. I'm not crazy about reading the book of Job, but one thing I've noticed, I did a series on Job six years ago called Silence, and I learned something six years ago when I was doing that series. Job is a book that needs to be read in one setting, even though it's 42 chapters long. You know, if you're going to see a play on Broadway, you don't want to see the first act, you know, one night, and then six weeks later see act two, and then a year later see act three. You want to see it all together to feel the holistic integrity of the, of the play. And Job works like that. It's not a book that you can sort of pick up and set down. You need to just read the whole book so you can get the feel of it. And so flying back from Mexico a couple of weeks ago, um, I, on the flight from Mexico to Dallas, I read all 42 chapters. And in reading the book of Job, I, I, I looked at it and I thought, there's so much here that we need to experience and feel. And so one of the things that this particular message is going to do today is I'm going to go pull from the middle of the book. What I've watched is I've watched ministers talk about the book of Job. Guess where most of their sermons come from? Chapters 1 and 2 and the last eight verses. Because that foggy midsection... It's such a challenge. But on the other hand, there's so much that we can learn in those flyover chapters. So today, I just want to introduce the book to you. The real sermons will start next weekend. I want to introduce Job to you. I want to introduce a book to you that says there are no easy answers, but there's blessings for those who are willing to chase after God. All right? Meet Job. Here we go. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It just means he didn't have any glaring sin pattern in his life. A man of complete integrity. You know, some people have integrity in one, act, one area of their lives, but not in others. But Job, complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. So now you know about Job's spiritual life. Meet his family. He had seven sons and three daughters. Chuck Swindoll said Job had life by the tail, because he had 10 kids and all of them were grown and living on their own. <laughs> now, I want you to see how wealthy he was. In those days, there were no banks, there was no currency. Land, uh, wealth was measured by land and, and livestock. He owned 7,000 sheep. That's like owning a textile corporation. 3,000 camels. That's like owning a trucking business. 500 teams of oxen and 500 female donkeys. Why is it important that he owned 500 female donkeys? In those days, the greatest delicacy in the world was milk from female donkeys, and it was the basis for many delicacies. That is like owning a candy factory. So, Job, I want you to understand, he was very diverse. He had all kinds of businesses. He was the richest person in that entire area. But I want you to hear what God has to say about him because we'll learn later on that God is having an exchange with Satan. And so God is giving his opinion of Job. Job 1 verse 8. God says, have you noticed my servant Job? He is, now how would you like to have God say this about you? He is the finest man on the earth. She is the finest woman on the earth. I mean, blue ribbon. This is God. This is not his next door neighbor. This is not people who like him. This is God saying he's the finest man on the earth. Now, I know it's been a while since Billy Graham has been around, so a lot of you won't know who he is. But for those of you who do, you will understand the statement of a minister friend of mine who said that Job was Billy Graham and Bill Gates all rolled into one person. <laughs> he was the richest guy in the world. I remember telling you six years ago that if you saw a Bentley in the poorest part of town, it wasn't a drug dealer. It was just Job buying groceries and taking groceries to somebody who was poor or helping a poor kid through college. That is Job. And 
I want you to know what his life was like before it fell apart. So we're going to go into that foggy midsection because Job is going to make speeches about how life was. So follow with me if you don't mind for a few moments as Job tells you what his life was like before it fell apart. He says, the young stepped aside when they saw me. So in other words, young people respected me. And even the aged rose in respect at my coming. All who heard me praised me. For I assisted the poor in their need and the orphans who required help. I helped those without hope and they blessed me. And I caused widows' hearts to sing for joy. Everything I did was honest. I served as eyes for the blind and feet for the lame. I was a father to the poor and assisted strangers who needed help. I broke the jaws of godless oppressors and plucked their victims uh, plucked their victims from their teeth. I mean, here is a guy that is so good to people. He uses his wealth to take care of people who live in his world. We would expect a bright future for this guy, right? So did he. He would say, surely I thought I will die surrounded by my family after a good long time. Job was thinking, I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to do great things. And God is going to take care of me And I'm going to somehow mitigate the problems of life and not have any suffering. Here's the reason why I don't like to read the book of Job. One morning, unsuspecting Job gets up. Normal day. Richest man in the world, best man in the world, 10 great kids, all grown up, all doing well. And on top of that, they love each other. How many of you would just love to have that if your kids just loved each other? That would be a miracle within itself. Ten kids. And you know, they loved each other so much they took turns going to each other's house throwing parties. Wow. He gets up one morning like any other day. It's going to, you know, he stretches. It's going to be a great day today. Has his Jimmy Dean sausage. I mean, it's just going to be awesome. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at their older brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. Now I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Sir, I'm sorry. You've just lost all your oxen and all your donkeys. You've lost half your wealth. I mean, how would you like to just lose half of everything you own? You say, I did, Mark. Welcome to 2007. (laughs) But read on. And here's the chilling statement. We're going to see it three times. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God, that's the word for lightning. It's been a lightning strike and started a fire and burned up all your sheep and all the shepherds. And I'm the only one escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their elder brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind, a tornado swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all, all your children are dead. And I'm the only one escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Now if you think about that while he was still speaking phrase, In minutes, if not in less than a minute, Job's world collapsed. He he got up that morning thinking everything is fine. He went to bed that night bankrupt, planning ten funerals. But the worst was still yet to come. Because a few days later, Job began to notice that he had sores coming up on his body. And he thought perhaps it was just some kind of breakout or some kind of problem, but these these were ulcerous Uh, tumors that were forming on his skin and very painful. And then they just began to appear all over his body. And eventually we're going to read, well, let's read Job with ulcers and scabs from head to foot. They itched and oozed so badly that he took a piece of a shard of broken pottery to scrape himself. The only relief he could get was to scrape those ulcerous, painful sores and open them up to allow them to drain. And he went out and sat on a trash heap among the ashes And his wife, who, of course, don't give her too hard a time. She's been to the 10 funerals of her kids. She said, still holding on to your precious integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? Or why don't you commit suicide? To the extent that you can, I want you to put yourself in Job's place. 
You start a day, richest man in the world, everything going well for you. And then just in a matter of days, you've lost all your wealth. You don't have any assets anymore. You've got 10 dead children in graves. And now your body is covered with ulcers. And you don't even get the comfort of the person you love the most, your spouse, because she is in such pain herself that she sees her husband like this and says to him, why don't you just end it all and take your life? I don't even know why I put this in the sermon. I think I did because it's personal. Job has one issue. He has a lot of anxieties. And he seems to be a little bit compulsive. I just love him for that if for no other reason. Because we read in the book of Job, you know, his kids used to get together and have parties. And Job was nervous. He was like, well, maybe, when, maybe one of them would have too much to drink and, and maybe have the wrong attitude toward God. And so I just want to make sure everything's okay. And so the Bible says that, you know, Job would offer sacrifices because he said to himself, this is in Job 1.5, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. So he was obsessive compulsive too. He had anxiety. See, he was concerned that something like this would happen. He would say in Job 3.25, what I always feared has happened to me. See, all that time Job was having good days, it was like, wow, I could lose these sheep. Or more than that, what would happen if one of my kids were to die? As I said a moment ago, when ministers talk about the book of Job, usually they leave out the middle of the book. And I think that's a mistake because when you go into the middle of the book, you get this sense of what Job was feeling. And I just want to share with you a few cherry-picked samples of Job's feeling during this awful season of his life. I don't know how long it lasted. Did it last days? Did it last months? I mean, I know it lasted days, and it probably lasted months. It might have even lasted years. But during this time, Job pours out his feelings. And the reason why I want to share some of these with you is I'm guessing that some of you have at least had part of these in your life. And maybe you asked yourself when you felt this way, would it be okay with God if I told God how I felt? Well, the answer is yes, because Job did, and God puts it in the Bible. In Job 6, verse 7, he said, my appetite disappears when I look at food. I gag at the thought of eating. He said, I don't have the strength to endure. 6 verse 11, I have nothing to live for. How many of you deal with chronic pain and you understand this verse? Lying in bed, I think, when will it be morning? But the night drags on and I toss till dawn. And then not only did Job have physical problems, but people at this moment, and I think we'll see why when we start talking about Satan's activity here, we'll understand why this happened. But there were people that chose this opportunity. When, how many of you discovered that there are people who will kick you when you're down? And Job writes, people jeer and laugh at me. They slap my cheek in contempt. A mob gathers against me. The people spit in my face, 17.6. Job 19.16, when I call my servant, he doesn't come. I have to plead with him. My breath is repulsive to my wife. I'm rejected by my own family. Job 31, I'm mocked by people younger than I, men, young men whose fathers are not worthy to run with my sheepdogs. Job 30, verse 9, now they mock me with vulgar songs. They taunt me. They despise me and won't come near me except to spit in my face. 30, verse 16, depression haunts my days, and at night my bones are filled with pain. And then, of course, something that Job will repeat very many times during the book of Job because he can't figure out why God has allowed these things to happen. He doesn't know. Maybe God hates him now. Maybe God is angry. And so over and over, he says, I cry to you, God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. And I think for those of you who deal with any kind of mood disorder, especially those of you who deal with depression, I, was, I read this on the airplane the other day, and I thought, I've never read a more poignant description of depression If you deal with depression, look at these words. He said, my harp plays sad music. How many of you feel that? In other words, those emotions that God gave you that normally would generate joy, your harp plays sad music. And this is Job. But in this book of Job pouring out his suffering, what we're going to find is some answers. Now, therein lies an interesting dichotomy because... God followers have loved this book through the years because it provides answers, but God followers have also been frustrated through the years because a lot of times the answers it provides are not to the questions that we want answered. It's interesting. We have questions we want answered, 
And what we're going to see is God doesn't answer the questions Job wanted him to answer, but he answers more important questions. See, the thing of it is, when we go through suffering, a lot of times we really don't know what it is we want. I mean, how many of us, when we go through suffering, we want reasons? Yesterday, I was listening to a sermon of a man whose son committed suicide. He preached this message back in 1975, so it was a long time ago. And he was preaching only three weeks after his son committed suicide. And he said, the most unhelpful thing has been all the people who've tried to call me, he said, and explain to me why my son committed suicide. He said, people want to give me some reason for it, some purpose. But he said, what they don't understand, if that's not helpful at all, because even if I understood why Ronnie committed suicide, it wouldn't bring him back. See, isn't it interesting that a lot of times the questions we think we want answered are not the questions that we need answered. And so Job is so important, it answers the questions that we really need to understand when we go through suffering. Well, I've done something that I've never heard done in a message on Job. I heard ministers preach lots of sermons on Job, but I just did something I've never seen before. See, most of the time when ministers start talking about Job, they give you the backstory and then they tell what happened to Job. What I did is I left the backstory out because I wanted you to see and feel what Job felt. See, Job didn't know what was behind what was going on. He just woke up one day and his world fell apart. And I wanted you to feel it that way. But now I want to go back and pick up the backstory. In Job chapter 1, we learn some very interesting things about God and we learn some interesting things about Satan. And let me just tell you this, and I'll get this done real quickly. But long before there was a world, long before there was a human being, there was God. God is eternal. People are always asking me, when did God begin? Because everything has to have a beginning. That's because you're familiar with God's creation. The interesting thing is God is the inception of beginnings. There were no beginnings until God. God is eternal. So God invented time so we could measure things. But God is an eternal spirit. And God, he loves company. So long before there was a world, long before there were human beings, God created eternal spirits to serve him. We call them angels. And the thing about God is that whenever he creates living beings, he gives living beings a free will because God wants to be loved and he wants to be worshipped. But what good is love if you make somebody love you? If you're in a relationship and you make somebody perform up to your expectations, where's the love in that? So God, anytime he makes a living creation, he gives that creation the free will, the choice, and he did so with the angels. The most beautiful of all the angels was an angel named Lucifer. I think he was probably the most powerful. If he wasn't, there were at least no angels who were more powerful than he. With his free will, long again before there was a world, Lucifer got looking in the mirror and he said, why should God get all the love? I could be God just as well as God could be God. And the more he thought about it, the more convinced he was. And so he not only felt that way about himself, he began to talk to some of the other angels. And according to the book of Revelation, he talked a third of the angels into coalescing around him and starting a revolution. I have friends who are atheists who love to have fun with me. And they say, oh, Mark, you guys, you believe in God. You've created this God, and you have to create this opposite and equal nemesis. I always laugh when I hear that because Satan may be opposite, but he's not equal. He's a creative being. And so God's reaction to this, re- to this revolution was to thump them all out like that. But it does seem from the book of Job, we learn something very interesting, that even though the angels, the fallen angels, the demons, Satan is in our world today, they still have access to God. At least they do at the beginning of the book of Job. So the angels are coming before God to report to God as we'll all report before God someday. And among the angels comes Lucifer. Now, Lucifer, people who have the idea of Satan, that he's this hideous creature in a red, you know, red hideous creature with a pitchfork and horns, he must love that. First of all, he's a spirit, and he's eternal, and he's an angel, and he's very beautiful, and he's very intellectual. So he comes before God, and his purpose in coming before God is very clear. By the way, do you know what the word devil means? The word devil means accuser. In fact, Scripture calls him the accuser of the family. So Satan doesn't come in, you know, with heavy metal music to God. He comes in basically to have a conversation with God about people on the earth. And here is the very essence of Satan's conversation with God. Satan wants to tell God that everybody is just like he is. See, Satan doesn't love God, didn't love God. 
The only reason he felt like he served God was for what he could get, and he thinks that's the only reason that you serve God. That's for what you can get. And he, he pulled that on our first parents, Adam and Eve. You can be God. He thinks everybody thinks that way. And so he comes in to tell God, hey, God, I can't believe you're so good to that Mark Hoover. Do you know what he's been doing? I've been checking him out. I've been watching him. And I just cannot believe you're so good to that loser. And so God got tired of Satan coming in and just saying, what about this person? What about that person? So God just jumped him. And he said, what about Job? Hey, do you find this interesting? I never thought about this till the other day. Satan doesn't bring Job up to God. God brings Job up to Satan. I don't know about you, but I want to say to God, you know, if you're ever talking to Satan and my name comes up, (laughs) just leave me out of it. (laughs) And so God says to Satan, hey, before you even start on Mark, have you seen Job? (laughs) Well, you ever know anybody that's sneering, sarcastic, just full of attitude? I think if you could hear from Jesus, Jesus would say, well, he's just behaving like his dad. I want you to read Job 1.9. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and the possessions have increased in, in the land, but stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And God said, all right, you can test him. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't touch him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and there you have the first day that we read about a few moments ago where he lost everything he had in his 10 kids. But what did Job do? You heard Jesse sing about it. We, we sang about it in worship. When Job lost everything, Satan had said, God, he will flip you off if you take his stuff away from him. But the Bible says Job stood up and tore his Armani in grief, and then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I won't be pulling a U-Haul when I die. That's my paraphrase. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Some of you have a translation that says, blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a good translation. Blessed means to say something good about Job. is saying, I've had a bad day, but I'm going to find a way to say something good about God anyway. And a few days later, Satan comes back. Now, if he had any integrity, he would say, God, you were right, and I was wrong. But he has no integrity. He has no goodness in him. And he comes back, and God said, hey, tell you, tell you. Satan replied to the Lord, chapter 2, verse 4, skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot, and now you know about Job's second terrible day. In the next three weeks, we're going to talk about answers. Big answers. Next week, we're going to talk about alone when you feel abandoned. Week three, we're going to talk about alone when you're misunderstood. And wow, I can't wait till week four because we're going to talk about alone when you're summoned into the presence of God for healing and restoration. But in the few moments that we have left here, and we only have very few moments, I want to share with you what I see are obvious answers about suffering and grief that we pull from this first two chapters. The first lesson is, There's more going on than we can see. When we think about life, we tend to think about what we see. We see our families. We see our kids, our workplaces, our homes. And we feel like when something bad happens to us, that that's pretty much the scenario. And yet what we see from Job is there's more going on than we can see. That there is God, God in his kingdom, in his future. And at the same time, we have an enemy, Satan. And oftentimes you and I get caught in the crossfire. And when we try to make sense of life with the missing pieces, sometimes we struggle to do it. See, Job Job can't figure out what's going on. He feels like God must have abandoned him. His friends who are going to come to talk about, we'll we'll talk about them in week three. His friends who are going to try to come and explain it. All they can figure out is that Job must have some sinister secret that he's being punished for. And his wife feels like it didn't do any good to serve God. All three of them get it wrong because there's more going on than they can see. I stand here every time I do a funeral, and almost every funeral I tell the audience that the most underrated verse in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, 
And I think it's the hardest verse that you and I have to get into our gear work. In 2 Corinthians 5.5, God in no unquestioning terms states that we were created for the life to come. We were not created for this life. After all, it's only going to last 70, 80, 90, 100 years. You're going to live with God forever. Which do you think is the more important of the two? C.S. Lewis said, if I have longings that aren't fulfilled in this world, then perhaps I was made for another world. And you and I live in a temporary place in a broken world. And now I want to take you to the second lesson because we're ready for it now. We don't always know. We, 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 we get normal and abnormal wrong. See, we think when everything is going well, that's normal. And then when problems come, we think it's abnormal. I was reading the book of Job on the flight back from Mexico. And I don't know, do you ever have this experience when you're trying to understand something, maybe in a class in college or maybe in a, a problem at work, and, and you just know the solution is just right there, but, and, and you can sort of feel it, but you can't grasp it yet. And it's like on the tip of your brain. And I was reading through the book of Job, and I thought, there's something here, but I can't grasp it yet. And I kept thinking the word fence, fence, fence. Because Satan said to God, you have put a fence around Job. And then it hit me. Hey, a fence says something is atypical. If you're driving out in the Kansas countryside, there's no, there's no fence, there's no house or anything. How do you know the land hasn't looked like that forever? But when you see a fence, you know that something is atypical. Someone has settled that place. And on top of that, they have created a zone with that fence, an atypical zone. And in that atypical zone, they're either, either trying to keep what's inside from getting out or what's outside from getting in. But you do know when you see a fence, that is atypical. The world did not start that way. We often think that when things are going great, that's normal. No, that's abnormal. See, if everything is going great today, God has got a fence around you. He has a fence around your children. And somewhere, somewhere in his mercy, God has said, in a broken world, I'm putting a fence around her and her marriage. I'm putting a fence around her kids. I'm putting a fence around their finances. And if right now everything is going well, you need to understand that's not normal. That's abnormal. This is a broken world. Our first parents sinned. They surrendered kingdom authority over to the enemy. If you want to read what this world is like without God's fences, open the book of Revelation and read the tribulation. See, the tribulation is all about a world that is basically told God, and we're hearing it in our world today, God, we don't want you. We don't want your word. We don't want your thoughts. We don't want your ideas about sexuality. We don't want your opinions about anything. God, get out. Revelations, tribulation is all about God saying, you want me to leave the room? I'll leave the room. See, the tribulation is just all the fences coming down. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I want to say, God, please leave the fence around me. I want to thank God for putting a fence around my kids and my grandkids. I want to thank God for putting a fence around my wife and my, my blessings. Don't you want to say that today? How many of us, see, here's the thing. We're saying, oh, it's just normal. No, it's not normal. If you're blessed today, that's abnormal. Give God thanks and glory for letting you live in a zone of abnormality. Maybe that fence will come down someday. But if it does, number three, the third lesson that we learn is even in the darkness, even if the fence comes down, keep your faith in God. Move toward God. Why is that important? And when you go through those painful chapters in the book of Job, Job is going to begin to feel distance between him and God. I mean, that, it'll, he'll, that distance will close, and then it'll separate, and it'll close, and it'll separate. It's possible that when you and I go through hard times, we can get angry at God. I did one time. I've done it many times, I guess, but one time in particular. It was back in 2006. When we were still in the throes of transition here at New Spring. Felt like my heart had been torn out so many times and we were facing difficult things again. And I was up at 2 or 3 in the morning sitting on my deck and I remember saying to God, I wouldn't treat any of my sons this way. And I didn't hear God speak out loud, but he might as well have. God just basically said to me, well, Mark, if you're not going to look to me, who are you going to look to? That's a good question, isn't it? 
I remember getting out of my rocking chair on the deck and getting on my knees and saying, God, I will continue to look to you. I want to just pull your attention real quickly to the book of Lamentations. It's another book about suffering. It's a book about a guy who had hard times. And like Job, he's struggling. His name is Jeremiah, and his country is in captivity. And Jeremiah is seeing things he never thought he would see. I mean, it's so awful, I didn't want to tell you about it. But Judah, was, people were even resulting, resorting to cannibalism. And so Jeremiah is just going to pour out his anguish to God. And I want you to listen. He said, I'm the one who's seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anchor. He's led me into darkness, shutting out all light. He's turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He's walled me in and I can't escape. He's bound me in heavy chains. And though I cry and shout, he shut out my prayers. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter than beyond words, bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve my loss. So Jeremiah is saying this is just dreadful, it's dreadful, it's awful. I don't even see how I can go on. But then it's like he puts in the emotional and mental spiritual clutch and he shifts gears. He said, and I love these words, yet I still dare to hope. Is that speaking to somebody here today? Because you're just about to give up and you're hanging by your fingernails. And yet Jeremiah said, yeah, I still dare to hope. Well, I used to take dares when I was a kid that were stupid dares. Is this a stupid dare? No. It's a base, there's a basis for it. He said, I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. Jeremiah said, I still dare to hope when I remember that you still love me. And then he writes the words that give us a hymn. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Jeremiah is saying, I'm going to keep holding on to you because even though today is a bad day, I know that your mercies start new every morning, and I want to be standing in line first tomorrow morning when your mercies come forward, and I'm going to trust you. I'm in overtime right now, and I need to end right this moment. But i got to tell you this. I was on the plane reading the book of Job, and I saw a verse that just really spoke to me about this, and I'll leave you with it. Poor Job doesn't know. He thinks that God is mad at him. He doesn't know about Satan. See, Job doesn't have the book of Job. (laughs) All he can figure out is God just hates his guts. He doesn't know why. Or God is angry at him. And my heart kind of goes out to him when I read this, but I love what he had to say. Job said, I wish you would hide me in the grave and just forget me there until your anger is past. Job said, I wish you'd just kill me and cover me up until you stop being angry. But Job said, but mark your calendar to think of me again. How many of us could say that to God today? Just don't forget me. I know you love me. My my hope, my confidence is in you, and I will trust you in the storm. Thanks for being here. We'll kick this off again next weekend.